Matthew chapter one, be, uh, Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse one, reading through verse six. We're going to read these, and then we'll have a short time of prayer to ask for God's help this morning. Here's what it says: Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, and as you can tell, we're up to Matthew chapter 7. As is the case with the Sermon on the Mount, whenever we read the passage, we immediately regret coming to church. But I hope this morning that we certainly won't. First of all, I want to thank Seth last week for bringing it home. I mean... Thank you, Seth, for your willingness to serve Christ and His church. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what chapter 6 ends with. In fact, he says, don't be anxious. In fact, don't be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then verse 7, he seems to shift gears, but I want to show you maybe a little bit that he doesn't really shift gears. He's not saying, seek first the kingdom of God. New topic, don't be a judger. He's saying, in your seeking of the kingdom of God, don't be mean. Don't be mean. You have discovered in your heart, by the work of the Spirit, by His grace, a desire to no longer be anxious, to set aside the things of this world, and to seek first the kingdom of God, and that's exciting, and that's exhilarating, and you hope that God might do a powerful work in you, and what's with all these morons around me? Why don't they get it? In seeking first the kingdom of God, we must understand that one of our first impulses as creatures is to decide nobody else is doing it quite the way we are, and it's really, really frustrating. Kingdom relationships. What he's been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is many things we must trust about God and what it means to live for God, and he's challenged us in a number of ways. And now what Jesus is doing is coming around and saying, now in this, in your obedience, in your faith, remember, you're with others. And those others are going to be on that journey with you. And there's going to be some going a little bit faster and some going a little bit slower. And in this journey together of seeking first the kingdom of God in kingdom relationships, don't be mean. And let's look at what that looks like in these verses. Verses 1 and 2, kingdom relationships. Kingdom relationships. First thing, be changed be changed, that is, seek first the kingdom of God instead of your things now. Be changed, but don't be God. Judge not, that you not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. All of us at some point in our life have maybe learned a new habit, something that benefits us. We buy a new car, we take up an exercise regimen, we start a new diet. And as soon as we start having really positive effects from this new habit, we suddenly realize what is wrong with all those other people who haven't figured this out yet. 
And we start telling people about this new diet we're on. And suddenly we realize when we call our friends, they don't pick up. We can't understand why they don't want to hear about this powerful new thing in my life. This is so great. This is so wonderful. Why don't you want to hear all about it? I can't understand what's wrong with these people. Can't they see what I see? And judgment is nothing more than that. It's saying, I must have seen something special. I must be something special. So therefore, where I stand, I can look at you and assess and decide whether or not you're on the right path. Judge not, though, he says, because there's only one judge. And who is that? We can know two things about who is judge. Number one, who it's not. Who is not the judge? Say it, me. Who is the judge? God. There's only one judge. It's God. It's a one-person job, or a one-God job, I should say. And you're not him. And what Jesus is saying here is let, of course, let the kingdom change you. Let the work of God change you. As you seek first the kingdom of God, be changed, but don't think you are now God. Now, of course, he's not telling us we shouldn't be discerning. We can know right from wrong. We can know good from evil. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 tells us that. We should know right and wrong. We should learn by the counsel of Scripture and experience of walking with the Lord of, with others what is good and what is bad, what is good but what is better. And we ought to be able to discern truth from error. But what we are not able to do are these things. You cannot know someone's heart. You cannot know someone's motives. You cannot know someone's intent. You can't know someone's weaknesses, whether they have those weaknesses because of disobedience or whether they have those weaknesses because God saw fit to give them those weaknesses. You can't know people's strength. You can't know the measure of grace God has given to another person. None of these things can you know. Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. You can turn there if you want. If you don't want, I'll judge you. It's inappropriate. I'm kidding. There's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment... Listen to this. This will rattle your cage. Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. How much faith do you have? The measure of faith God has assigned. This is going to bother you. The person next to you does not have the same measure of faith. Some of them have more. Some of them have less. Is it because they're a lame-o Christian? No. It's because God has seen fit to give each a measure of faith. And then we stand back in judgment on this one and say, what is your problem? Why can't you trust God? And they're saying, because he didn't give me that measure of faith. What do you want from me? Keep reading. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
So first, God gives us a certain measure of faith. Who decides how much and what kind of measure of faith you get? Is it you? Is it because you're awesome? No. I mean, you're awesome, but that's not what makes him decide it. And now we discover we have different grace according to his purpose. Let us use that grace. If one, it's prophecy in proportion to their faith. If service, in serving. In the one who teaches, in teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who lends, or should say leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Why can't they get their act together, you might say? What is their problem? What is taking them so long? The question you must ask yourself, if the Bible is informing your heart about your brothers and sisters in the Lord, do you know the grace given to them? Can you look at your brother and sister in the Lord and determine the grace and faith God has given to them? Are you able to do that? Absolutely not. We can't judge that. We don't know the measure of faith or the measure of grace God has poured out on them. And Jesus says, therefore, maybe it's better if we don't take up his job description. Maybe it's better we don't decide we know everything about this individual that God knows and stand in, stand in judgment on them. And his promise is this. Don't worry if you decide to stand in my shoes I'll let you know how good you're doing my job. For the judgment you pronounce on others, you will judge. Jesus will be happy to let you know how good you are at being God. He's better at it. This happened a long time ago. Some guys had some friendships, and they used to play softball together and whatnot, and things got a little rocky. This is Job 38. I don't know if they played softball. I'm making that up. If you don't know what happened to Job, he lost everything because the devil had asked God permission to take away all his money, take away all his kids, take away his health. And uh, as a result, his three friends came to him and shared with them what they believed to be true. Uh, what they believed to be true was this. Bad things happen to people who are bad. And they tried to explain to him over and over and over again, the reason things are going wrong in your life is because you have sinned. Confess your sin. And Job said over and over again, uh, no, I'll take that up with God. I don't think I've done anything wrong. And over and over again, Job uh, attempts to justify himself, while at the same time his friends stand in judgment on him. Obviously, he's a sinner. Look how lousy his life is. God would never do something like that to a good person. Here's what God says to Job in Job 38, verse 4. I've read this before. It's one of my most favorite parts of the Scripture. God says this. When Job tried to justify himself. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Uh, who determined the earth's measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut the, with the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling, swaddling band and prescribed limits and set bars and doors and said to the, to the sea, this far shall you come and no further. 
Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. God says to Job, in justifying yourself, you're not very good at being God. Think about that for Job. How would he be feeling in that moment? He was already having a bad run. Now it seemed to be getting worse. But we need to understand where Job was at was better than the place his friends were at who were standing in judgment. Because listen to what God says to Job's friends who were standing in judgment over Job. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, all the friends were standing around watching this going, oh, snap. Job's getting it. Then God turns to his three friends. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, this is one of his three friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, Job certainly had a bad attitude. God made that quite clear. But friends, you have done something worse. You have stood in judgment over him, and that's my job. So what does God tell these three friends to do? Therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant, who? Job, and offer a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For guess what? I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of what is right as my servant Job has. And guess what? His friends did exactly that, and Job prayed for them. The ones who stood in judgment, God called to account. The one they judged, God lifted up and said, pray for them. God hears the prayer of the one who is judged, and God is not hearing his judging friends. Be changed, but don't be God. God puts on our heart conviction of sin. God puts on our heart a desire for his kingdom. God puts on our heart a desire for his things. Be changed. Allow those changes to work through in your heart, but be very, very careful that you don't allow those things to express themselves in judgment that comes from God alone. Judge not. For how we judge, it will be turned back on us. Look with me at verse 3. Be changed and don't be God. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? We have a vision problem we're going to talk about here for a minute, but let me highlight a couple of things by way of review, because Seth pointed these out last week, but it's worth remembering. We see in Matthew 6, God seeing a number of times. He says it, in fact, at least three times, if not more. When we pray in secret, the Bible says, in, in secret, your Father will see you and reward you. And he says, when we give generously in secret, what does it say the Father does? He sees and will reward you. And he says, when we're fasting, we fast in secret that, that no one might know, but the Father what? sees and that he might reward us. 
In fact, he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he comes here to verse 3 of Matthew 7 and says, why do you, what? See. We have a vision problem, the Bible is telling us. When it comes to kingdom relationships, we must understand that it's important for us to have open eyes because it's not open season. We must have open eyes because it's not open season. What I mean by that is we must have our eyes open to what God is doing, not eyes open to hunting for the faults of others. Look what he says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus understands you can't actually have a log in your eye. Some of you think, well, you would be dead if you had a log lodged in your eye. Now, Jesus understands. He's making uh, almost a joke. It's, supposed to, it's intended to be ironic. He's saying, you notice this speck of dust in your friend's eye. He's kind of winking like this, He's doing this. Man, I hate this. Did you hate that? And then you walk in with this plank that's literally hanging out your eye. You're like, what's wrong with your eye? Friends like, what's wrong with you? I mean, it's weird. He says, we have a vision problem. Because we're saying with this log, let me get at that thing. He's like, no, keep that nasty eye away from me. You've got a log hanging out your head. We have vision problems. Alexander the Great was leading his army across the great desert. In fact, most of his men during this great crossing died of dehydration. Finally, they found themselves upon a river, and they made camp for the night to uh, replenish their supplies as well as get rehydrated for their final march. Beautiful spot, beautiful place to make camp, sitting by the river. It was wonderful, ready access to water. What they didn't know was up in the mountains. They couldn't see it. It's too far away. There was a massive thunderstorm going on. So they're camped by the river, and this storm is raging away up in the hills. They have no idea what's going on. They all go to bed that night. Unbeknownst to them, in the middle of the night, the waters finally arrive at their camp. And Alexander lost many men that night from this flash flood because they camped right by the river. They couldn't see the problem that was right in front of them. You can't camp by a river in flash flood areas. If you can't see the problem, you're not going to be able to see how to get out of where you're going. And our, what Jesus is saying, when we approach others with the spirit of judgmentalism, our vision is off. Not only can we not really determine what the problem is in other people's lives, we have no idea the problems in our own. We don't even see that we have a vision problem. In fact, we're blind to our blindness because we can't see clearly. And Jesus is saying here, we need to have our eyes fixed. We need to have our vision fixed so that we can properly have relationships with one another in the kingdom of God. James says it this way in James chapter 4. He gets at the heart of it. He says, what is it that comes between us in the body of Christ? What causes quarrels and fights? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, but you can't have, so you murder, you covet. You can't have it, so you fight and you quarrel. You ask, but you don't receive because you ask uh, wrongly in order to spend on your own passions. 
You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who wishes to make himself an enemy of God makes it, should make himself a friend to the world. This is what he says in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one of the brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge, and there is only one lawgiver and judge, he is able to save and to, to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James says it this way. Don't we understand that we are often driven by our own passions and desires and envy and greed and lust? And we somehow think that when we sit in judgment over someone else, we're able to set those things aside and dispassionately, fairly judge the walk of another person. And James says this, don't kid yourself. How about this? Let one judge be judged. It ain't you. Whenever we judge, we do so from mixed motives. Whenever we judge, we judge with eyes obscured by our own fleshly desires. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I didn't say often when we judge. What did I say? Whenever we judge, we do so with mixed motives and eyes obscured by our own sinful nature. There has not been a time that you stood in judgment of somebody else and did so dispassionately in such a way that God would have done it. Every time we assess and judge someone else, we do so from a position of mixed motives, flesh, pride, and self-interest. A couple of other verses. Galatians 6.1. Paul says this in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should sneer at him when he comes to church, not hang out with him. Now, what's it say? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He is saying, coming to a brother who is caught up in sin, not as a judgmental person saying, you're bad, I'm good, be more like me. He's saying, okay, I'm going to help you out here, but we need to be careful, otherwise I'm going to end up in the same trap as you. That's a spirit of humility, where we restore another by both seeking humbly the grace and truth and power of Christ to give us Victory over sin. This is living together in the kingdom with both our eyes open. With a good vision of your weaknesses, but an even better vision of my own. There's a case study of what this looks like in Galatians chapter 2. Peter was visiting the Galatian churches. Peter, of course, is Jewish, and he would hang out with the Galatian believers, and they would enjoy great meals of bacon and ham. And then the Jewish Christians showed up, and all of a sudden, synagogue Peter came to play. No more bacon, no more ham. In fact, I'm not, I'm not even going to eat at the same table with those Gentiles. Now, I'm a Christian, so we'll stay in the same room. That's something, right? Here's what Paul had to say to Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter through the, to them all, if you, the Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Did, did Peter, or should I say this way? Did Paul get up in Peter's face because he decided Peter didn't measure up to his standards? Did Paul stand in judgment of Peter? No, look what he says. It's a very important distinction. I saw his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He's going to Peter and saying, Peter, I see the gospel here. I see you here. Those things aren't matching right now. And he rebuked him, not for being lower than him, not for being less than him. He rebuked him for not lining up his life with the gospel because he knew Peter believed in the gospel. He had his eyes open. He wasn't there to uh, have a character assassination on Peter. He was there to draw Peter back to the hope of the gospel. Open eyes, not open season. With our eyes open, we can ask this question to ourselves and one another. Where does our hope come from? Who does our hope come from? If my hope comes from Christ, I don't need to be so concerned about the little teeny speck in your eye. If my hope comes from Christ, I can finally get that log out on my own. However, if my hope comes from spending time with other people who keep themselves cleaned up like I think they ought to, then my job is going to make sure you don't embarrass me. And your job is to make sure I don't embarrass you. That we're not bad. We don't do anything shameful. What does that always lead to? When we all decide we've got to keep our act together so we don't embarrass one another. What does that lead to? We still do the embarrassing things. We just finally figured out to do it at home and in the privacy of our own homes. We didn't fix the log and the speck. We just stopped being honest with each other. Open eyes, we can come to each other out of love and devotion and say, you got a speck, i got a log. Would you help me out? I don't know what to do about this thing. You must be good at keeping logs out of your eyes. You just got that little baby of a speck. How do you do that? Once you get the log out of my eye out, I'm going to be able to see that your speck probably isn't even anything. Kingdom relationships, eyes open to the truth of the gospel applied to our own hearts as well as those around us. Gospel eyes opened what the real problem is, and that's the rejection of the gospel and the cross of Christ. Look at the last verse of Matthew 7. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This verse in some way seems out of place. Like Jesus was giving this great message on judgment. He goes, oh, you know what? I forgot something. I'm going to talk about animal husbandry for a moment. What are you talking about? Kingdom relationships, gospel grace, not being gospel naive. And this is important when it comes to understanding what it means to be discerning 
and being judgmental. So look at how this is structured. It's sort of a poem here is how he says it. So let, let me just explain how it works here. You probably already understand it, but just review it. It's, it's set in such a way that he, he, he says, don't give dogs what is holy. That is what is good, what is set apart, what is special. And don't throw your pearls before pigs, okay? And then what he does is he then says what each of those animals would do in turn. So don't give your dogs what is holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they, what's the they there? The pigs trample the pearls underfoot unless the dogs turn and attack you. So the way it's set up there, he's saying, don't give dogs what is holy, otherwise they're going to turn and attack you. Don't give pigs your pearls lest they trample your pearls underfoot. And he wants, what he wants us to do is understand there's a big difference between saying, I don't want to be a judger, but I also don't want to be naive. And Jesus is saying here, to avoid judgmentalism doesn't mean you're naive. Understanding the grace of the gospel doesn't mean I live in some Pollyanna world. I understand how the world works. And in kingdom relationships, we want to understand gospel grace, but we also don't want to be gospel naive. This is what Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Did you hear what he just said? Jesus denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Here's what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he lists two Jewish cities where he did powerful miracles. He said, listen, if I would have gone to these Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, and if I would have done the miracles there that I did in you, they all would have repented. But I tell you, It'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And, you. and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what they did. If the works done in you, Capernaum, would have been done in Sodom, whoa, Whoa, really? If the works done in you would have been done in Iran, does that help? They would still be here. No judgment would have come on them. Wait, Jesus, slow down, simmer down, camper. Do you know what they were into? I mean, there was some weird stuff going on there. I mean, if you want to, go back to Genesis, you can read it. It's weird stuff. Don't let your kids read it. But I tell you, it'll be more, listen, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. See, what Jesus is saying to them is, I'm not naive. I'm not just going to keep giving you the God. Once you have rejected what I'm doing, fine, we're done here. I am offering you gospel grace, Jesus says, but I am not so naive to say that I know everybody's going to accept it. And once you say, know what, Jesus, I've got my own way to God, Jesus is saying, fine, I'm going to move on. That means offering gospel grace, 
but, but not being naive. This is how religious people respond to the gospel of Christ. Verse 18 of Matthew 11, Jesus says this, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not mourn. John the Baptist came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, I'm not naive, I'm moving on. You're not looking for hope. You're looking for a religion that will fit your life. And the gospel doesn't have room for that. He's not going to keep throwing his good news of the gospel to those who will trample it underfoot. Acts 13. I want to review this just very quickly. And by very quickly, I mean very, very slowly. They were on their way to Antioch, a different Antioch than where Paul had begun his ministry. And uh, they came to Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue, and they sat down. And at the synagogue, they read the scripture, as they always did on the Sabbath day. And they turned to Paul, because they knew he was a Pharisee and a religious leader, and they said, hey, you got something to say on this topic? And Jesus, I should say, Paul stood up, and, and he said this. He, long story short, Jesus died for sinners, and he rose from the dead. And let me give you all the Old Testament passages that say why the Messiah had to come and rise from the dead. A lot of people were convinced by what he said. In fact, a lot of people got uh, saved. And in fact, the people begged him after he gave this message. They said, will you come back next week and tell us more? We need to hear more about this Jesus. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God in the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is, the Jews, uh, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for God has commanded us to. So this is what Paul is saying. He goes to these folks. He shares the gospel with them. The religionists reject it, and he says, fine, I'll go somewhere else. Notice Paul doesn't spend the rest of his life trying to convince these religionists that God can save them, saying, you want your own way to heaven? You can have it. I'm going to go to sinners who need a savior. I'm going to go to the Gentiles who are hungry for the truth. And he shakes off the dust of his garment as an act of judgment, saying, your sin is on your own head so, since you don't want the redemption that comes from Christ. Gospel grace, not gospel naive. If somebody says, you know, I don't need your Jesus, got my own way to go, at a certain point, Jesus is saying, then go. Then go. Don't throw our pearls before swine. The gospel is too precious to be thrown before those who would desire to trample it. I can't decide. I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this to us. 
Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Let that settle in. Somebody told a story this morning. Somebody asked, they were in Africa somewhere, and they said, are there uh, predators in the water? I said, no. So they went swimming and came out and said, well, why aren't there anything in there? They'll lead us. And I said, well, the piranhas take care of them. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> and Jesus has just said to us, don't worry about it, sheep. I'm going to send you out on mission. Where are we going? The wolf pack. Um, I don't know if you understand how wolves work. Basically, whatever their stomach desires, they put in it. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, not like Satan. In that day and age, serpents were viewed as animals that had great wisdom. So go out and be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He's saying here, Go out and be very discerning. Give out the good news of the gospel. Give the pearls. Give the treasure of the gospel. But be discerning. Once you know there's one who is just simply a wolf, walk away. Have a clear conscience. But at the same time, we're not to be naive. Jesus confirms that the gospel will offend the religious. And he's saying, don't waste your time with those who want to take their religion to heaven. They won't make it. Move on and take the gospel to those who need it. Use discernment. Use wisdom. Be as wise as serpent, but yet also as innocent as doves. He is calling us here to live in the tension of don't be cynical, but also be cunning. Don't question everybody, but question some of them. And that is a difficult tension to live in. Okay, last passage I want to turn to. It's Matthew chapter 21. We're going to close with this passage. I think. I'll decide when we get there. Jesus tells this parable, one of my favorite parables. You hear me say that a lot. Each passage of Scripture, I read it and I say it's my favorite. I just got to let you in on a secret. It's whichever one I'm reading right now. Uh, to ends up being my favorite. Jesus says this, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first one and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today, and the son said, forget about it. Don't want to. I'm going to go play video games. Afterward, he changed his mind and went and worked in the vineyard. First son, hey kid, go work in the vineyard. No way, pops. I'm busy. Later on, he goes, you know, I, I should go do it. So he goes and does it, right? He goes to his other son, verse 30, and he says the same to him. And the other son said, oh, I'm happy to go. Here I go. And then he doesn't. So one said, no, I don't want to go. And he went. And the other one said, yeah, I'd love to go. And then he didn't go. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? So answer the question. He asked you a question. What, which one did the will of his father? The mouthy one. Amen. From the mouthy ones in the room, right? Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you because John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. 
And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. So John came to the people of Israel and said, you're sinners, repent. Who believed him that they were sinners? The really bad sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. Who didn't believe him? Church folk. He said, we're, oh yeah, sure, I mean, I've done some bad things in my life, but I'm not a tax collector or a prostitute. Is there another option where I don't end up in the group with them? And Jesus is saying, tax collectors and prostitutes came and said, God, we don't need your business. I'll handle my own business. Later on, they hear the message of the gospel and said, oh, forget it. My way was wrong. Whereas the religious say to God, I'll do it your way until they find out that God doesn't really want to do it their way. And they say, forget about it. I'm not going to do it. Jesus is saying here, the way he is going to judge things is at the end of time. We want to judge people before their end has come. A couple of things to draw from this, and we'll close. We tend to judge others based on what we see in them today, their weaknesses, their insecurities, their rebellion, their selfishness. We tend to judge others based on their disobedience because that's what we can see today. And we tend to judge ourselves on the fact that we plan to obey someday. So when I see you, I'm going to judge you because today you're a real messed up person. I'm going to judge myself in the same way, but not based on today, but what I hope to be in about 20 years. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do either one. I'm going to judge the obedient based on their obedience at the end of their life. And frankly, based on their obedience in the gospel, that is a willingness to just trust Jesus to be obedient. We can say it this way, another way to think about this. We tend to, I'm trying to be nice here so I don't make you too mad. We tend to judge others on what we see, that is their behavior. And we tend to judge ourselves on our intent. So we judge others on what we see them do, and we judge ourselves on what we really wanted to do, even though we blew it. And the other person says, well, I wanted to do it right, too. Well, then do it right, mister. Well, what about you? He said, well, but I, my heart was in the right place. So we tend to judge others, say, you know what, you need to get your act together. When I judge myself, I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to try and get my act together, but what really matters is what's going on in my heart. Jesus wants us to do something very, very different. Jesus instead judges based on his intent, which is radical grace. And Jesus is judging based on his obedience, which is radical service to the undeserving. So how does Jesus judge? He looks at those who have received him by faith and says, I will judge you based on my intent which is to pour grace out on you. And in faith, if you're in Christ, I will judge you based on my obedience, which is radical obedience and service to the undeserving. See, when, Jesus, when, when we're in Christ by faith, Jesus judges us. And he says to us, in faith you're in me, so therefore I will judge you with my grace. Who wants to be judged by grace? That's a good deal. 
Anybody have a list of really bad things they've done this week? If you don't ask your spouse, it's fine. They've got one. You want to be judged on that list? And Jesus said, don't worry about it. In me, I'm going to judge you based on my grace. Well, what about our obedience? Jesus says, in me, I'm going to judge you based on my obedience. He's really good at obeying. We have to understand the, the immensity of the glory of Christ's grace and obedience on our behalf if we ever want to get off the judgment game. Because as long as I feel like Jesus is judging me, I'm going to want to judge you. The way to get off of the hamster wheel of judging the other people around your life is to finally rest in the fact Jesus is judging you based on his grace and obedience, not your sin and disobedience. Another way of saying this is the gospel is really, really good stuff. Maybe I would describe it as a pearl. Maybe I would describe it as holy, as a treasure. Maybe if the gospel is this good, we should give it to those who need it the most. In your life right now, who is the one person who needs to hear this the most, that Jesus judges based on his grace and obedience, not yours? Who's the one person who needs to hear that? Who is the one person you need to tell it to? You know who it is? It's you. Because the gospel is one of these funny things. We're really good at telling the people around us, you know what, Jesus forgives you. And then we get into our own little pity party. Uh, Jesus doesn't like me very much. I wish Jesus would like me with his grace as much as he likes my buddy. You say, I have trouble telling people the gospel, so I'm going to give you an, an easy out this week. You ready? I want you to share the gospel with somebody this week, and it's you. This week, as you're going through it and you're feeling God's judgment on you, you do something bad or you do something good, but it's not that good. Just tell yourself what we're saying here. Okay, Jesus is judging me based on his radical grace. And he is judging me based on his obedience. Share the gospel with yourself that you might, buy, might be filled up with the goodness of it. And at some point, it's going to come out and you're going to accidentally tell somebody else. I don't believe what Jesus did this week. He showed me his radical grace. Don't worry. Seek the kingdom first. People around you are going to be different spots on their journey towards that kingdom. Maybe we can offer them the grace of Christ and the obedience and service of Christ instead of judgment.